Hi, my name is Ruby, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife's assistant, and you're listening to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive. The podcast you'll be listening to today is entitled Finding Common Ground in a Mixed Faith Marriage, originally produced and published by Marriage on a Tightrope. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy this episode. We have a wonderful guest today, Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. Welcome to Marriage on a Tightrope. Hi, I'm glad to be here. We're so excited to jump in. We have a very fun Q&A. We would love for those that are not familiar, we'll read a quick a quick bio just so you guys understand who we're about to talk to. Yeah, so Dr. Jen, Jennifer Finlayson Fife is a relationship and a sexuality educator and coach, as well as a licensed clinical professional counselor in Illinois with a PhD in counseling psychology from Boston College. She wrote her dissertation on LDS women and sexuality and has taught college-level courses on human, human sexuality, and currently teaches um, online relationship and sexuality courses and um, live workshops to LDS individuals and couples. She offers couples um, coaching services to individuals and, and couples who have benefited from um, her podcasts and courses and are looking for more direct input on improving their lives and relationships. She is a frequent contributor on the subjects of sexuality, relationships, and spirituality to LDS-themed blogs, magazines, and podcasts, including Ask Mormon Sex Therapist podcast series. Um, she maintains a private coaching and counseling practice in Chicago, where she lives with her husband and three children. She's an active member of the LDS Church, LDS Church and we are super happy to have her on um, our Mixed Faith Marriage podcast because um, you deal a lot with mixed faith marriages, don't you? Yes, I do. Yes. Aren't yes. they the best? No, they're the best. <laughs> they're just the best. <laughs> well, we want to dive right in to some of the questions, the Q and A, um, and so I'll just go ahead and 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 ask the first one. So, um, going through a faith crisis. Well, Alan, you go ahead and take this one. Yeah, and and before I read it, I, I'll just say to our listeners that the way that this interview came about is every single month within our Facebook group, we have a guest therapist. Uh, it's called Therapist Tuesday. And Sterling Barnes, who is a rock star, um, coordinates that for us. And this month, it, Dr. Finlayson Fife is very kind enough to, to take the time and wanted to do a Q&A. And very impromptu last minute, uh, we had the, we being Sterling, had the idea and foresight with Dr. Fife, Dr. Finlayson Fife, to uh, set up this this interview rather to have a more of a dialogue and and make it a little more impactful. So if you'd like to hear uh, more from her, uh, you can join our Facebook group or keep an eye on that every Tuesday this month. Okay, so here's the first one. Going through a faith crisis, I've lost many of my habits that I once used for navigating stress and finding peace, such as prayer, scripture study, church, etc. So you take all the stresses that come from a faith transition and couple that with losing the tools you used to deal with stress. In fact, mm -hmm. those tools are now new sources of it, that it being stress. And it sometimes becomes difficult to know how to process any emotions. What are your thoughts mm -hmm. on that? Well, I mean, I guess what I would say is to normalize that fact that I mean, I think what happens for many people who go through a faith crisis or a faith transition is exactly what this questioner is saying, which is that not only do they lose the tools, but maybe very importantly, they lose a sense of protection or shelter from a harsh world. And that that can create more anxiety in people because they don't have the same sense of, um, I know I'm speaking sort of stereotypically because people will have different sort of beliefs through a transition, but often don't have a sense of a world in which if you obey the commandments or do what's right, that you have a certain protection afforded to you. And there's more of a sense of being in the cold world and sort of handling that anxiety more on your own. And that awareness can be very challenging. It can be very stressful. And so it's partly the loss of the practices and the rituals and the sense of belonging you know, in a marriage, in a community. Uh, but it can also be just this overall sense of like a God that's looking over you and looking after you can sometimes be shattered. And so it's stressful. And I, I guess what I would say is um, nothing's going wrong in the sense that you are feeling more stress. 
And I think what's often happening and, and whether or not people use this language is that their view of themselves, of the world, and in a sense, their view of God, whether or not they believe in a literal God, but their sense of kind of what matters in the world and um, how humanity works, it's shifting. And there are ways in which that shift can be an evolution, in my opinion, and ways that that shift can be a devolution, can, can devolve. You know, it can be like a resentful, cynical uh, contempt. And I think if it goes in that direction, it becomes even more stressful. Right. Because there's not only the sense that I thought there was someone looking after me, but no, I've been tricked and the world's much more uh, harsh than it is and no one's going to look after me. So I have to look after myself in a way. And I, I think, you know, I've seen some people go in that direction um, where they can justify their own kind of indulgent behavior because there's no longer a sense of a God that's kind of observing them. Other people, though, and I think this is still stressful for a period of time, can have their, in some ways, can take on a deeper sense of responsibility about their moral behavior. And instead of, you know, what some think is like, well, God's going to come again and clean up the mess down here, they have a deeper sense that what they do matters and that creating goodness and creating a better world is more in their hands, um, even if it's only a limited impact. You know, we may not have the sense of control that we want, but some can at least acknowledge that even if I don't have as much control or power as I want, I still do have some control and power or I still do um, have a responsibility. And I think people that move more into a sense of what can I do to make the world better, to make my relationships better, to be somebody that I respect, well, it that is a kind of assertion of belief in what really matters. It is a moral assertion, and I think people that do that tend to fare better, even if they don't have the familiar comforts or rituals that they once knew. Um, and they may still find those rituals, and they may even some people even may find them in the church, and but they create a different meaning for them, or they relate to them in a different way. Yeah. And that was actually the follow-up question was mm. um, in a mixed faith marriage that was very centered on the, like the faith crisis. Right. But mm. the, the, this questioner asks, additionally, my wife and I both really miss having that shared language of those faith practices. Do you have any mm -hmm. advice on creating new practices for approaching those? Or like you well, mentioned, I, I like what you mentioned. Sometimes you can actually find uh, new meaning in old practices. Yes, absolutely. So I, I guess what I would say is that, um, you know, I, I come from a large family of, uh, there's eight of us, and some are participating in the church and some have left. And so it's, you know, I've been a social scientist of my own family and seen how a lot of people have, who have, I would say my entire family's kind of held um, the church dear in a sense in their lives, actually, and have often found new ways of relating to the old. Um, thank you. But um, so... I think that um, what I would say is that in a mixed faith marriage, I think it's, 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 there are some challenges to this and maybe we'll get to this in some of the other questions, but, but I think it's like, can we accept each other enough and our varying beliefs enough to tolerate that back and assert what we share? What do we share in terms of what we value and oftentimes couples share a lot more in what they value than they can sometimes see in the face of the difference in belief. So oftentimes, you know, what do we want for ourselves? What do we want for our children? That often these kind of core and important, simple but difficult values of loyalty, honesty, perseverance, um, you know, just things like that, that what do we stand for that we think matters of how we want to live in the world and we'd like for our children to live in the world. Because I think if you can assert those and come to a shared uh, set of values, then you can think about how do we kind of lay claim to these in our family, in our marriage, 
in what we offer to our children. And if one is a believing member and one is not, we can talk about those values from different frames, different traditions, different stories and narratives. You could talk, you know, about the notion of, of charity and compassion, and you could cite, you know, New Testament stories, for example, or you can talk about it from literature and, you know, and so you can say here, and at the same time be modeling to your children that we can respect one another, even in the varying ways that we have come to those beliefs. So I think then you can kind of come like a lot of couples I work with have family home evening. Uh, they still sort of choose some of these practices, but they do it from, okay, mom's teaching the lesson this week, dad's teaching it this week. And so they may draw on different stories and narratives and scripts, but they're sharing a set of values that they want to hand to each other. And so it's often created within that family and that couple, but they're not rejecting the faith tradition but as you said, they may utilize it in a different way. Mm-hmm. I yeah. really like that because I think that's what Alan and I are trying to do is mm-hmm. when we think about um, teaching our kids, we're both trying to, you know, um, bring our own flavor, if you will, to yeah. the marriage, um, yeah. different different um, ways of looking at things. So just I'm getting <laughs> by what you're saying, the next question I think has answered it. Is it healthy to sweep differences of belief or faith or opinion under the rug and never bring mm-hmm. them up? Yeah, like clearly, no, I would, <laughs> I would never say never bring them up. But on the other hand, what I would say is that in some ways, and this might be a little stressful for some people, what I'm going to say, but in some ways, it doesn't matter if you think the temple is divine in the scheme of the marriage and the family. Because if you if you share the value that we want to teach our children loyalty or even consecration, like that to give of your gifts to the betterment of the world, that we don't have to fight about whether or not this is where God wants me to be, because I believe it is and you believe it isn't. I utilize the temple to to foster my ability to make sacrifices. It facilitates and helps that. And my spouse does not. But that's okay if we come to it differently, because what we're standing up for is the actual behavior of sacrifice, for example. And so, like, you don't have, I don't think it's, a lot of times people want the validation of their spouse so much that they'll put all their energy into either proving that the Book of Mormon's true or proving that it's not true or whatever, you know, and they get into these fights because it's more about, I want you to reinforce me and my beliefs rather than I will really get clear about what I feel is important, live my life accordingly and stand up for the good, even if I can't get reinforcement from you. And that's a harder thing to do. We're, we're much more wired to want to demand everybody see the world that we see it. <laughs> that's, that's very human. So, um, so I would say, yes, it's fine to sweep it under the rug. I'm not sure if that's quite the right word to let it go. If it's not really about the core issue of your behavior and appreciate that people may come to virtuous behavior differently. Mm. I like that. Come to virtuous behavior differently. I like it. Mm -hmm. So Katie and I could speak directly about this one, that there are normal issues that come up with a mixed faith Mm -hmm. marriage. Uh, what are some of those normal issues? I think maybe the listener may feel some some reassurance that what they're experiencing is normal, is common, mm-hmm. are things that you can work through. And then mm-hmm. conversely, what are some big red flags that may come up mm-hmm. as well? Well, the normal part is, first of all, if you have a spouse that goes through a faith crisis, it really alters your relationship to the community, whether or not you want it to. And so you're no longer... If you're the believing spouse, you're no longer, you don't have the same status anymore within the community through no fault of your own. Okay. (laughs) You know, and, and so, and you're seen as either, there's a lot of pressure often to have people condescend to you because, excuse me, it's a way of keeping the threat of your non-believing spouse in a particular position, right? Like, oh, poor you, you must be, feel so terrible, or if they think that you're maybe okay with it, then they may want to distance from you because it, it, it feels like a, a challenge in a sense, right? So 
that can be a tricky thing because you may be a full believer and not want the condescension, want the sense of belonging and not feel like you have it in the same way. At least people talk to me about that experience that they feel like they, they can't any longer kind of occupy the social position they occupied before. I think the other challenge is that a lot of people, you know, when they get married, there's the assumption of a shared foundation, a shared, a shared goal, a shared meaning frame. And a lot of times it really, how to say it, it supports the reality of the marriage more than people can see. And so when that meaning frame shatters, a lot of times people are kind of not only disorganized and disoriented by the loss of the shared meaning frame, but the sense and then, you know, feeling some anger towards the spouse whose belief has changed. So that's going to all be very disorganizing. But also the question of how well do I even know you? Are we even really friends or have we just kind of been in this shared project and been so busy that we've not really paid attention to the question of our friendship? And so a lot of that can be laid bare and really challenging questions. You know, it's easy for me to say this as a coach and a person that's sort of on the outside. I see it as valuable work for people because it pressures the question of how much intimacy this marriage can handle, of how much can I tolerate really knowing you when you don't validate me. And, um, and, and so it, I have seen couples really grow and get stronger and more solid in the process. I've seen some that fall apart and get into bitterness and resentment and pressuring the other person to be more like them. But it is a chance for people to grow, and uh, but it's it is uncomfortable, one thousand percent. The theme song you didn't hear that we played before. Oh, uh-huh. the interview is called "Grow as We Go," and the whole mm-hmm. theme of the song is that you know you can change if you need to change. Like you can change right next to me, I'll grow with you, and you can grow, yeah. and I'll and I'll be right there beside you. So that rings true. Yeah. One thing yeah. I wanted to talk about, because I, I, I really liked what you touched on, um, for the, those who are still believing and mm-hmm. um, they, they feel like there's not a place for them in the church mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah. And I think that a lot of, there are a lot of um, people in my position who end up just kind of fading away because they yeah. don't feel like they've been heard or valued or yeah. um, that they are part of the community anymore, which is very sad. And yeah. This next question is, uh, what are some of the benefits from a healthy mixed faith marriage that go mm-hmm. underappreciated um, by a church culture that emphasis, emphasizes marrying and staying in the faith? Like, how can mm-hmm. we be confident in, in our marriage when we feel like we don't belong? Right. So I, I absolutely, I re- just remember that I didn't talk about the red flags. Should I go oh, to yeah. the red flags and yeah, then come back? Okay, sure, sure. So, yeah. <laughs> but they're important. <laughs> um, what I would say with red flags, red flags, I mean, maybe two issues come to mind is that anytime people, how to say it, when people become tyrannical, in their perspective. And I've seen people do this through belief and through non-belief, you know, that somebody's like, I'm a, I'm woke. I see the truth of things and I'm just going to shove it down your throat. And, you know, and, and they use a kind of self-righteousness. Okay. I'll do it from the non-believing position. They can use a self-righteousness and a kind of demand that you see the world the way I do. And I'm going to trample over your beliefs from a place of moral and intellectual superiority. So it's really, that's really indecent. It's really insecure. I mean, I, my challenge to people who do that is like, look, I thought you didn't like dogma. I thought you didn't like tyrannical demands of conformity. And yet you're doing that precisely in the opposite in your marriage. Um, the, and then the other side, of course, is that, well, the other red flag I would say is that sometimes people that go through a faith transition or don't believe can then sort of justify a lot of, you know, in the name of, of waking up and no longer being duped, will use it as an opportunity to be very indulgent and demanding in the marriage. That is to say that they're doing things that are excessive and irresponsible and 
they're in that same demand sort of asking for an accommodation in order for the marriage to stay together. So that's the worst version of that. But, and that's all red flag because you don't have to believe, but you can continue to be a decent person and a good friend and still partner. So um, the other side of it is the red flag of my loyalty is really to the church, not to you. You know, that my, my commitment is not to our partnership, but it's to the, um, I don't know how to say it, to the organization. And I'm married to you in as much as you kind of reinforce me in the beliefs and the, the marriage that I really want, which is with the organization. So in the name of obedience and righteousness, you kind of keep uh, the, the real marriage is in the reinforcement that you get there. And then the resentment is in the marriage, even though you don't want to end the marriage. And I think that that can look much more righteous, for lack of a better word. It can look much kinder or better than it really is because you don't maybe want a divorce, but you don't want to really know and be known by your partner. And so it's, um, you know, it's one thing to say, I really believe this. This is very important for me to to um, observe this practice, to do these things because they have a meaningful purpose to me. It's another thing to say I'm doing them because um, I believe in the in the truthfulness of the organization. And so I'm just going to go along and judge you for not doing the same. That's a more immature position. Mm-hmm. So I have a off script follow up question. Sure, sure. Going improv style. So what you just mentioned, right, is one of the red flags um, for the believer is to kind of take their personal belief and impose them on the spouse, mm-hmm. hold them to the same, no, you need to do this, my, my loyalty lies with the organization, and maybe it really works for them. But then just a few minutes ago, Katie asked the question of, of the believer who is in a mixed faith marriage starts to notice that they don't quite fit anymore. Right, I'm exactly. About I'm thinking about some of our listeners who perhaps their spouse is out to them, but not out to anyone else. Mm-hmm. And so that hasn't happened yet. And maybe mm-hmm. hearing that, that that is the reality for many spouses who still believe that's a really scary prospect. And maybe mm-hmm. they're thinking, no, this will not, cannot happen in my marriage. I don't want my relationship with mm-hmm. the church to be damaged. Is there some kind of, mm-hmm. how can that, can they have both? Yeah, it's so hard. It's tricky. I mean, it's tough. It is. I mean, what I think some couples do is that the non-believer also enjoys the community enough, also likes it and can be on board enough with what's being taught, you know, that they can in some ways be an active non-believer. Right. So they can participate, maybe participate on their own terms. Maybe they won't accept a calling or they would only do certain, you know, maybe activities chair or something like that. But they aren't, but they're, so they're kind of masking the difference so that the family can continue to exist within the faith community. And, um, when the non-believing spouse sees enough upside for them, I think that that can work, you know, that, they also don't want to just lose some of their good friends and the good people that they've interacted with. Um, I think, you know, I'm good friends with a couple where when they married, she was a believer and he was, he had never been LDS. And not only was he not LDS, he was atheist. And, um, but, you know, she holds a lot of dignity in her position. She doesn't ever apologize for her husband. She doesn't ever kind of dismiss who he is and how he functions in the world. But similarly, she doesn't dismiss her own perspective and she doesn't apologize for it. And uh, we do, you know, since um, we've been in quarantine, we do Sunday morning church with um, them and some other friends of ours on through Zoom. And, you know, she's she does not ever apologize for scriptural stories or but she's a very solid thinker. She thinks well about um, theological positions. My my point is that I see them being very comfortable kind of claiming their respective views respectfully with one another. So now I just totally lost why I'm saying this. <laughs> what was the question? <laughs> Do you guys remember what you asked me? Oh, oh so yeah. oh, yeah, I know, I know, I, I know what I was going to do. 
<laughs> so what I guess I'm saying is I really respect her ability to like unapologetically be in the community. Her husband comes with her sometimes, sometimes he doesn't like back when we were going to church every week. And, um, but, but she doesn't, she doesn't buy into the condescension that might be there. Yeah. She just really doesn't. She's like a deliberate, thoughtful about it, unapologetic about it. And I think sees the benefit of a mixed faith marriage in her own life, actually. Are so there's... it's also partly how much you're going to accept the condescension, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. Because yeah. you can find that both in your ward family, stake family, as well as in your own personal yes. family. So what, right. are, what are some things that like maybe I could do if I feel like um, that I'm getting mistreated by any family members or, or ward members? Um, mm-hmm. Are there things that I can say or things I can do to show that um, I'm happy where I'm at? Um, yes. I mean, I would, the way I might think about it is my goal is not to prove to them I'm happy because then they have the control, right? Mm-hmm. My goal is to live honestly and clearly about the fact that whether or not, see, because I think that they're, that the, that a lot of believing people are motivated to imagine you're not happy because that reinforces their view. And there may well be things that are challenging about it, but still you are living a happy life and you see that there is benefit and good things that have come into your life through it. So I think what the way I would think about it is that I'm, I understand that people may be motivated to do that to me, to kind of stereotype me in my life, but I'm not going to, um, how to say it? I'm not going to reference their view to fend off. I'm going to just live as it is and live honestly which is, oh, yes, there have been things that have been challenging for me, and it also is clear to me how much I have become a more solid moral thinker in the process about what I really think and feel. You know, so you're, you're not proving it. You're just not going to pretend what, that it – how to say it? You just are owning your real, reality and your experience. And, you know, I think that's kind of powerful because it's sort of a message that I don't believe I have anything to apologize for. And that's strong in its own right. If it's like, hey, mom, I feel like you're being condescending to my husband. You shouldn't be. He's a good guy. But that's more almost reinforcing the condescension. Mm. Right. So it's a little like owning the dignity of your reality. And it takes some work to do that when you know people are invested in taking your dignity away around that and just not letting them do it. It's a more personal decision. And you have the locus of controls in you more than it, it feels like at times. So what is that not letting them do it? Uh, Meaning you don't, in, in you don't buy into, you don't submit to it. So it's like, um, you know, like, for example, it might look like you just unapologetically. Um, I have another friend whose husband is not, he was LDS at one point left right after his mission. She ended up marrying him years later he comes with her to church, but he also drinks and, and she doesn't, she never pretends otherwise. You know, she doesn't say, you know, they have friends over and they see the alcohol in the, in the cabinet and you know, she doesn't hide it or feel embarrassed or anything. She just like, it is what it is, you know, and he's awesome and I like him and, you know, and he sees it differently. So, and it's kind of like, I'm not going to accommodate your view that this is a scary bad thing because I can hold the dignity of who we are. Yeah. So when I say don't let it, it's like, I'm not going to, you know how you like go and you know what someone's thinking and then you're trying to defend yourself in their mind. You've put the locus of control in them rather than I know my experience and I'm not, and I'm going to hold on to what it is and, and kind of give myself and us as a couple that respect. Mm-hmm. So what is a response if a family member more than thinks, but they actually say it? Let's say a family member yeah. pulls you aside and says, hey, I see that there's alcohol in the house and the spirit's not going to live here anymore. <laughs> and like, what is a non-defensive response or reaction look like? I would say I think judgment of others drives the spirit away much faster than a bottle of wine. Yeah. Ooh. Can we use that? Can yeah. We, that? we gotta put that in a quote somewhere. I'm gonna put a bottle of wine in the kitchen just to set up the opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
I like that. Yeah. That's a great response. Thank you. Yeah. So that's one. So you, it's like, and I, I mean, it's about holding a mind that sees the limitation in that perspective. Now, if you're like, I've got to prove that's not the true one, then you're, you're back on your heels as opposed to the spirit's not big on small minded people. <laughs> right. So it's like, okay, I get that this person lives in a more limited reality than I do. And I'm not going to pretend it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. Lovely. So we can go back to that initial question before the red flags, right? Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. What was it again? It was, what are, go ahead, Katie. Sorry. Oh, yeah. So just what are some of the benefits of a healthy mixed faith marriage mm-hmm. um, that may go underappreciated from sure. family and friends? Well, one of the real, real benefits is that it helps you your children to be offered, especially if parents do this well, if parents do this with respect and genuine, you know, mutual respect and care, love for each other, those are super fortunate kids because it allows them to live in two worldviews, allows them to see that people can respect and love each other, even when they orient to the world differently and be able to experience both worldviews. I mean, honestly, that's a lot why I am who I am, because my father was state president and so on. And then he went through a faith crisis when I was in about eighth grade. Uh, he ended up staying in the church and kind of coming back to it more completely later on. But I really watched that happen. And I watched what my father was trying to sort out and grappling with. I also was growing up LDS in Burlington, Vermont, which is Vermont's very liberal within a conservative faith. And I was able to live in different worldviews, which I think is partly why I am able to do what I do, because I know those worldviews, because I lived them and I thought I, I met, I saw how people thought within them. And not only did it inform the way I chose and what I chose to live my life around, but it was an informed choice. So it really belonged to me and it allowed me to be not narrow minded. When I see people who occupy different positions, I can kind of understand and appreciate why they are where they are. So I think if you can see a system that does that respectfully, it really does give them the advantage of really forging a moral path that is true to the best in themselves. With, um, you know, it's hard to see any positives when you're first going through this. And a lot of people are just in the thick of it. They're just, you know, um, barely surviving uh, right now because they're, they're really feeling a lot of grief, right? From, from this, from this change. So what advice do you give to couples who are just starting out on this road that are, that are just going down this road? What are your best pieces of advice there? One thing I would say is that the grief is real and they don't need to pathologize it because it is a loss and it's a loss for the the non-believing person too. I mean, a lot is kind of get falling apart and it can feel like a free fall and it can feel pathological. It can feel like things are going wrong. Um, and what I guess I would say is, the fact that you feel that way is okay. And in some ways, give yourself the room to grieve, you know, to a point. Okay. If you're like actively grieving 10 years in, that would might be a problem, but, but, you know, to a point, you really need some time to just metabolize the loss. I think though, that there is also like with so much loss, there is an opportunity for a deeper kind of growth and for your spirituality to grow your understanding of God to grow your understanding of the world that God created is can be expanded and more opportunity to know God's mind in a way. Um, And it's hard to appreciate that. Like when I was um, a freshman at BYU, my brother, this was pre-internet. It's so weird to even think about that, but yeah, (laughs) but he was going through a faith crisis. He was my older brother, oldest brother. He was reading lots of old, you know, church history stuff and then was, doing the most annoying thing, which is coming and hanging out with me and telling me all about it. Okay. Sure. And I would be like, I love you, but I hate you. I mean, you, you are, you are, I, I don't want to know you. And that's really how I felt. Like, I don't want to know what you're learning about. I don't know what you're thinking about. So after having spent an evening with him, 
I um, was driving back to my dorm and I remember praying and saying to God, you know, like I'm going to distance myself from Chuck because as a, like to preserve my testimony. And I remember just having the distinct feeling that that is cowardly. That's cowardly. Like that anything that is true can survive me caring about my brother and knowing him. And I don't want to have, I don't want to be cowardly. And so it was for me to make a decision that I want to love people and know them and let myself learn what I need to learn and believe in a God who values that process. And I would, you know, I was young and I would sometimes think, okay, no, maybe God just wants me to just conform and hold on to what I'm being told is true. But over and over, I would have a sense of, no, God wants me to be honest and awake and that who God is will reveal itself through that process. So at the time I saw it as pathological, I would kind of say, well, I have these questions and doubts, but these good people over here, they don't. And that must mean there's something wrong with me that I even have the questions that I have. Uh, but, you know, in retrospect, I am so grateful that I was kind of pushed into that process that I did it honestly, because I feel like it informed me to be a wiser person, a more anchored person into my own integrity and my own compass. And that's tremendously valuable in a complex world. And so it's easy to pathologize it. But I think that faith crisis is often a process of spiritual evolution that we pathologize. Mm-hmm. I, I hear that. And I think to myself, you know, so much of what we've done over the past couple of years has been thanks to personal revelation that necessarily mm-hmm. isn't um, what we're taught about at church mm-hmm. is we rely on leaders and what other people tell us. But I think mm-hmm. over the past couple of years um, in our in our relationship and, and my own development, I've really leaned heavily on that personal revelation in order yes. to get me through. And it sounds like that's what exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. So I had to throw the acts based marriage away and yes. rely on the relationship. That's right. That's right. Which is a much more intimate marriage. That's the thing because we, we talk about intimate marriage, but a lot of times what we create in culturally is a role based marriage that's really not very intimate and you can be so busy in your roles that you don't kind of see it. Intimate marriage is much more challenging and will push you more in your moral development because you have to accommodate another annoying person (laughs) and in that they aren't going to just reinforce you and think the same way you do and, you know, boy up your sense of who you are and the world you live in. Mm -hmm. And that challenge, we can pathologize it, but it can be very valuable if you will let it, push your development. Um, just one more question along with, you know, especially children and families and raising kids, you know, it's, it's, it can seem a little easier. Like with, we have little kids and sure. we have a few teenagers, we can voice our opinion, but um, it seems to be a, a large challenge for those couples who leave when they have adult children who are mm. um, trying mm, yeah, to sure. get them back. So how, how would you, what's the best way to, um, keep those relationships when you're dealing with older kids. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. I actually don't know if I've worked with a couple in that situation, but I'm just imagining it. So what you're saying is the, the couple leaves together when they have finished raising their family, but now they have children who are devout, who then judge and judge the parents. Or even one one spouse is out and one is in, and um, mm-hmm. the pressure is coming from the children, not from uh, the sure. spouse or or parents. Um, you know, I we we know a lot of families relationships that have been ruined because of that. Yeah, that's that's hard stuff. Um, you know, I, so this is what I would generally say. I don't have a great answer for it, actually. I mean, I, it's hard because if you feel like somebody is trying to get you to be a different person or to believe differently, I think the question is, why are they doing it? Okay, it's like, what's motivating the pressure? And is it coming from something strong and good in them or is it coming from something weak and limited in them? 
So is it coming from, I'm genuinely worried about your eternal salvation, mom? Like, I'm genuinely concerned that I'm not going to be with you in the next life. And so, yes, I want you to go to church. Yes, I want you to go to the temple because I don't want to lose you. And at least then you know what's driving it. It's like, I really want to be with you in the next life. And I genuinely don't think that I will be because at least then it's driven by a sense of genuine care and honest belief. If it's coming from a place of it's stressing me out that you're not reinforcing the worldview I live in. And so I kind of put my fear, I I manage my fear through judgment and condescension. That's a lot harder because it feels more that it's not really open to know. Because in the first scenario, you can say, if you're the non-believer, you can say, look, you may be right. I may not be in the next life with you. I don't know. But I've, I've come by this honestly. And, I'm, and I can imagine that God would be compassionate towards that fact because I don't feel that I've deceived myself into my current position. Mm. And maybe, maybe my position will continue to grow and move in a different direction. But I believe that, um, that I don't want you to be afraid. And I'm, not, and I'm living honestly even if it's differently than you. Because then that person's at least open to, yes, it scares me, but I can respect you. You know, I mean, I would say that's my mom with some of her children. My mom is a very wonderful person around this. Like she is really a strong believer. Her faith has meant a great deal to her and has made her, she's like, she's like a true Mormon. You know what I mean? (laughs) She uses her faith to really love people. And really accept people, including the non-believing ones, without judgment. And she doesn't sit around trying to get them leaving ensigns on the table. She doesn't do that. She's she's like, I believe that God, they can work that out with God, and I'm not going to worry about it. Now, I think in a moment she'll think, like, is there a chance I won't be with them? Is that really true? But I think then she just says, I believe in a compassionate God, and I see the good people that they are, and it's going to be okay. So, you know, so that's that if you believe in a loving God, I think you can handle that fear a little better. If it's about, I just want you to be what makes me feel better. Well, that's more, that's not really based in love. That's based in a desire for self-reinforcement and using self-righteousness to pull it off. And I think that's much, I think that that could be more challenged. Like I don't feel your Christ-like love, even though you're professing to live in a Christ-like way. And I find it hard that you spend so much time judging my life. Um, So you could confront it more openly. I think if you felt like that's what was driving it. I think that's an excellent answer. And I really appreciate you bringing in uh, your personal, your mom into it because, um, I, I think that sometimes people feel like, oh, well, that's that's their clinical profession, and and but yeah. no, it's your it's your personal lived experience as well. Yeah, I My don't. Mom's awesome. I don't mean to correct a doctor by any means, <laughs> but I think the best advice would be have your faith crisis twenty five years ago. Yeah. So. Stop it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're saying that Beth is fine. Have it, yeah. Well, it's true. It is hard to have it with a family and kids, and it's hard to figure out how do I navigate this. I think another challenge people can feel is they feel like their choices have been taken from them on both sides of it, which can make it even harder. It's one thing like my friend who married knowingly her atheist boyfriend, and he married knowingly his believing, devout LDS girlfriend. But because then they're like, you know, there's still these challenges and there's there's pressure points in their marriage. But it's like we really chose it and, you know, we would do it again. It's a little trickier when it's like, wait, if I'd known you were in a faith crisis, I wouldn't have married you. <laughs> and that is harder because it's like you're in a struggle that you didn't plan on or didn't know. But on the other hand, that is life. <laughs> Right. You know, you have a child and you are having challenges you didn't anticipate or know. And that's how it goes. But but forgiving life for that fact, um, that can be that can be its own moral process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned something earlier. I, I love that you shared that story with your mom. You, you mentioned a, a story with your brother as well. And the, mm-hmm. 
the butchered quote that, that I really liked that you said was, uh, the truth can handle yeah. whatever the relationship throws at it. Yes. So with your brother, I think you, you implied, you didn't go on to say that, okay, you called him up and sat down and let him read to you all the anti-Mormon <laughs> stuff or whatever it is. Uh, but I think, you know, the, what we've seen is the closer the relationship, the harder it actually is. And in a marriage, yeah, for sitting sure. down and having doctrinal conversations can be really difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, can the truth handle that type of, like, what, what recommendation would you give of if, if a couple yeah. or one, at least one of the people in the marriage feels it's very important to sit down and read the gospel topic essays together, not separate, but together. How should a couple go? That's through a red flag, Alan. Like that? that I, well, because you're being it? tyrannical. <laughs> now this is hypothetical. This is not me. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, well, okay. Um, a couple thoughts. First of all, I agree completely. Um, well, three thoughts. First, I would say I think you know my read of Christian theology is it is primarily relational that the primary issue is the relationship. Love is the most important principle and everything else is designed to reinforce that capacity to know and be known, to love and be loved. And if you prioritize ideology, status, I mean, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, we do that. And yet we like to think it's the Sadducees and the Pharisees, as opposed to we are so vulnerable to that idea that we, whether or not we're believing, believing or not, that we have the truth. We know how things really are. And we feel sorry for everybody underneath us that doesn't get it. Right. So that's a very human, very easy thing to do. Love is much, much harder because it pressures you to grow. It pressures you to stop being in a narrow childish position. And so um, so I love that about um, Christian theology, and I love that about thinking like, can my 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 faith must withstand love for it to be valuable? Now, second thing I'd say is you're absolutely right that the closer the relationship, the harder it is, because they impact you much more than your brother who lives in a, you know another town or another state or whatever. That's easier, and you can visit them as much as you can handle it. You know, kind of thing. I'm actually quite close to my brother now, but you know, I mean, it, but you can sort of manage like how much of his reality do I want to kind of tolerate and know. Um, but so, what I would say is, when it's someone that you know and love, I would say the hardest work to do is just. I talk about this in my relationship courses that I teach, which is that the hardest work is just shutting the hell up and listening, okay? <laughs> like actually understanding the way the other person thinks and being curious not to take it down, not to prove to them they're wrong, but being curious to understand how that view is put together and that any challenge is, is about not how it is in reference to your view, but how it is even in reference to their own view. So that the, re the reason why that's so hard, I think, is because we're afraid if we know another view or we take it seriously enough to understand it, that it will either infect us or that we won't be understood. And in fact, the opposite is true, because when people will settle down enough to really understand, first of all, they may see that they're not as dissimilar as they think. I mean, it, politically, this is a big challenge we're having as a country is that there's so much vilification that we can't any longer see how much we're all the same. And that's dangerous. I mean, um, and easy. So this idea of settling down enough to think about, you know, I want to believe that your faith crisis was fully out of an indulgent place, but how did you come into it? And why doesn't this make sense for you? And not like a, why doesn't this make sense for you? But like, why doesn't this fit? And how does it fit in your screwed up head that this doesn't fit? You know, <laughs> I'm teasing, but like, it's very easy to want to like make it wrong, but to see if you can settle your own voice in your head to stay open to just understanding. And one way I think to facilitate that in yourself is to say, first of all, it is an act of love to understand another person. And I can decide what I think about that view after I really know it, but be fair enough and honest enough to know it. And, um, and then I can decide what I think of it and whether or not I think it's for me.
you know, whether or not it, it fits how I think. Um, but even if, even if you say, I don't think that way, or it doesn't fit for me genuinely for A, B, and C reasons, you still are wiser and better for knowing it and understanding it. And you can say, I can, I can tolerate you having that experience, living in that experience. Um, and I think when couples can really do that for each other, first of all, they end up influencing each other much more than, um, than they would otherwise think, you know, I mean, when my husband and I were first married, we had a lot of similarities. We got married later in life. And so we had a lot of similarities and related to church similarly, but, you know, we also had differences and some of those differences were challenging and because we came out of different experiences. So we, we had different experiences with the church and how they'd informed and impacted each of us. And at first we spent most of our energy trying to get the other person to be in the correct position. <laughs> and then once we kind of grew up a little bit, it just came to understanding why do you occupy the position you do? And I can see why that makes sense for you and vice versa. And then what ended up happening, because there was just enough room to be who we each were and to not judge each other for our respective positions, we ended up being becoming more and more like each other, actually, because we could influence and impact each other's perspective. And so, um, yeah, because it's no longer a threat and you can kind of settle down and see the wisdom in the other view. Okay, so, I think yeah. we should sit down and read the CS letter together. Today, oh, honey. gosh. <laughs> Oh yeah, that's a. That's a I thought that's oh, what yeah. I. Heard. <laughs> and she said, "You have to if you love me. <laughs> <laughs> if you really want to be like Christ, yeah." <laughs> oh boy! Oh boy! Oh! Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does, check out the links in our show notes below to learn more about where you can find Dr. Finlayson Fife's website, her online courses, information about her upcoming events information about her free Facebook group, and more. Thank you for being here.